Hi, I'm Rochelle Jackson. Welcome to The Crime Couch. I'm an investigative journalist and true crime author, and I know who's who in the zoo, the crims, the cops, and the interesting individuals in between. So get comfy and join me each week on The Crime Couch for a rollicking, intriguing tale. It'll be one heck of a journey. Brian Stoop was a sergeant with Victoria Police. He's regarded as a hero and a survivor. Brian was one of seven police officers shot by the infamous Mad Max in June 1985. The initial shooting of Brian and his partner, Senior Constable Peter Steele, sparked one of Victoria's biggest manhunts. Brian was made a paraplegic as a result of being shot four times, but returned to work before retiring in 2007 after nearly 35 years' service. He was awarded the Victorian Police Star for his action on duty, and it's a real honour to welcome Brian back to the crime couch. Hi, Brian. Thanks very much for joining me back on the crime couch. Thanks, Rochelle. Thanks for having me back. In our first interview, we talked about what happened that night you were shot in June 1985. Now, five police members, including you, were shot by Mad Max that night. Was this when the manhunt began? Yeah, the manhunt began uh, from the night that we were all shot and ended in Noble Park. Uh, And it started after Max Clark had hidden in the roof of a building, a residence of some description. And, uh, yeah, the the hunt uh, was manned there with a helicopter and numerous uh, members involved hunting the uh, nearby area. Uh, But unfortunately, they couldn't find him. And... uh, then the search went on later on uh, in other areas. It must have been a really uh, horrific scene, but also a real terror must have gone through the community, I'd imagine, as well as in the police community, of wanting to find this man. Yes, I understand. Uh, having visited Noble Park uh, and actually spoken to a rotary group there, that residents there were, were frightened for their lives and were locking all, the, making sure all the doors and windows were locked. And with the police presence, it was very unnerving for them. I think um, also police really expected Mad Max or Max Clark to be picked up in the next day or so, didn't he? But he just, he managed to escape and evade uh, any form of detection. Yes, I understand that he did escape. Now, whether that was by taxi or there was rumours that he went actually caught a taxi out, there were other rumours that he escaped down open drains that were uh, run through Noble Park and then, then just disappeared completely. And didn't he at one stage, as you were saying earlier, that he lay in a roof for some days? Yes, as I understand, it was about three days he lay in the roof of a house, just obviously uh, just waiting for the police presence to disappear and then make his uh, escape. 
Did you learn any more about him, Brian? I mean, I know after my research for the interview that he was a Bulgarian army deserter and he was also someone who had an enormous amount of experience with military weapons. He migrated to Australia in 1969 after hiding in Turkey for a couple of years. Did you know any further detail? Do you know if he had any priors when he got to Australia? No, I'm unaware of any uh, prior convictions or anything known about him when he arrived in Australia. As far as I'm aware, that police had no record of him, and uh, he's completely just flying under the under the stars. So, uh, yeah, just completely an unexpected uh, offender. Police. I think in that initial couple of days raided his home, which was a suburban home, and do you know sort of what they found? Uh, yeah, they found numerous rounds of uh, ammunition and uh, uh, an armoury that uh, he had there, automatic uh, rifles, I think a machine gun of some description, and uh, uh, I th- understood that he also had a, a shooting range under the house, but, so uh, yeah, he was uh, he was certainly a f- fanatic in firearms, and uh, I, I also understand that uh, he was a toolmaker, tool uh, tool tool and f- maker and fitter, and actually was manufactured f- uh, guns in the uh, Brayside area. The thing I also found extraordinary is that he seemed to have a duality in his in his life. Like he had family, friends, and he had a wife, and I think he might even have had a daughter. Um, and yet he had this other existence as well, where he was doing these burglaries at night. Yes, he obviously worked an afternoon shift, and when he finished his afternoon shift at work, uh, that's when he went out and committed his crimes. Uh, at the time I was or we were shot, uh, it's my understanding his wife and daughters were away overseas and uh, uh, and when they returned they uh, found out that what was happening in the mess he was in. How difficult was Mad Max to find? I know that the search basically went from being a search turning into an investigation, didn't it? Yes, it was a was a long period before uh, he was actually uh, discovered, and you know a lot of raids were uh, run by the major crime squad at the time, and and uh, yeah, a lot of places were knocked up, or uh, uh, and I, I heard rumours that people had jumped out of two story windows when they were raided. So mm. that was the significance of. Uh, um, that the police had put investigators had put on it at that time. They were prepared to uh, go to all lengths to try and catch this guy that had shot uh, the number of members that he had. What was the feeling like in the in the job and in the police service or police force at that time, Brian? Because I heard the same thing that they literally turned the underworld upside down in an effort to try to find him. Yeah, I think they were shaking, uh, shaking people up a bit to try and get some clues to to where he where he was, and uh, yeah, and you know, it took eight took eight months to for that to happen, but they did get a tip off, I believe, and uh, when that was investigated further, it was he was discovered. Well, I think what. 
the uh, police command did is went to the Victorian government at the time and they decided to announce and make a $50,000 reward for any information and the tip-off was where he was located. Where was he located? Yes, he was located in Wallen and uh, again, my understanding is he was in a... Uh, living in a caravan at a, a residence in Wallen and um, that's where uh, they found him and a surveillance car was sent up t- with two members, John Kapitanowski and Rod McDonald and they were to observe and try and identify him uh, to confirm that it was Max Clark. Uh, so uh, that was their mission when, he, when they went up there. And I think um, uh, Inspector John Kapitanovsky was chosen for specific reasons, wasn't he? Yeah, he had a lang- he was he was he could speak the Bulgarian language, and uh, yeah, it was to try and ascertain if maybe he was being ha- uh, harboured by people of the, that uh, ethnicity. So I believe also that at one stage he he was spotted and he was wearing a a disguise. He had a red wig and a beard. Do you know what then happened? Yeah, well they they saw him get into a, a panel van at the residence where he was staying, and again I heard that uh, that he took two kids with him in the car and dropped them off to school. Uh, from the family where, who were harbouring him at the time and uh, and then continued on and, and with Kapitanowski and uh, Rod McDonald following him, uh, I believe they felt that he they, Clark may have twigged that he was being followed and they decided at that stage they'd go from observation to intercept, uh, which they did. With um, pulled him over and Kapitanowski went to the driver's side, Rod McDonald to the passenger side. Rod was armed with a, uh, a shotgun uh, and and obviously Kapitanowski was also armed with a revolver and uh, as they were unsure who it was in the car because he was wearing a red wig and disguised, they were still unsure. So uh, Captain Oski asked Clark to produce his identification and keep his hands in view at all times, which he came up with a uh, came out with a, a wallet with his uh, and then dropped the wallet to the floor, bent down and then came up with a handgun and shot Captain Oski uh, at the driver's side and then turned and shot Rod McDonald, who. At that stage, has actually managed to open the door, the passenger side door, and put the shotgun through the uh, door, through the door, and was he managed to get off a shot after being shot himself, and then uh, the car just took off, and um, Rod had been shot through the shoulder, and Kapitanowski had uh, actually been taken the top off a finger, and uh, I think might have been struck in the head as well um, so uh, he was he was out of the game at that stage but Rod even with his shoulder shot was able to get a shot through the back of the panel van as it drove away 
uh, and uh, he was shooting SGs at the stage, which are big pallets, and then the car disappeared out of sight over the hill. What an extraordinary uh, event. Now, how did you feel, Brian, when you learnt that Inspector John Kapitanovsky and Sergeant Ron McDonald had shot and killed Mad Max? Well, I was a sense of relief. Uh, that's what it was. And I felt that for Kapitanovsky and Rod McDonald to do what they did, having known what lengths Marinoff had gone to or Clark had gone to before, uh, I couldn't believe the bravery of those two people. Mm. And... You know, actually, back in those days, we didn't have uh, emails and and text messages and mobile phones, and we uh, actually sent them a, both a telegram in hospital, thanking them for their brave and courageous effort. That's extraordinary because they managed to take him on without any backup. That must have been a decision they made on the spot. Yeah, they that was the decision they had to make at that stage because. Uh, if he went to ground again, he, he would, you know, he might n- not have been discovered again. It took them eight months to catch him the first time. They, did, they didn't want it, that to happen again. How important was it for you to return to work, Brian? W- when did you return to work and, and what was your recovery like? Well, I, I, I went to the Alfred Hospital uh, initially and then to the transfer to the Austin Spinal Unit. Uh, where I spent seven months in hospital and rehab uh, there before returning home in, uh, I think it was January, January, February um, uh, in 1986. And up until that stage where we'd had visitors out to the hospital from all ranks in the police force, we were being told that, no, you can't go back to work, you can't go back to work, you know. Uh, I was in hospital at that stage with two other members who had been in motorbike accidents. They were both paraplegic, so but the three of us were in hospital together and we all wanted to go back to work, but we were being told, no, that once you're paraplegic, you know, you can't work in the police force again, which was the last thing we wanted to hear, but we we told, we were insistent that, you know, we could still do a job in the police force. And luckily, luckily enough at the time, the Deputy Commissioner, Keith Thompson, who had been in, involved with the operation of trying to catch uh, Marinoff or Max Clark, uh, he was determined to get us back to work. And he was pretty close to McMillan at the time, and he was retiring in 1986, and he said, my aim is, before I retire, is to get you all three back to work, Is which is what happened. And we were the... F- first three or first people in wheelchairs to actually go back to work in uh, act well not active duty but it, in uh, in in uniform work how important was that for you to go back to work uh, it was very important for my uh, welfare my mental welfare uh, because back in those days we had no counseling and you know the, the best they could do was uh, welfare 
would visit the Austin Hospital every few weeks and bring a box of chocolates out. So that was that was the counselling back in those days. But uh, yeah, to get back to work with all your your mates at work and uh, the camaraderie of all your fellow members was was important and it was essential that I could get on with work and and be wanted and contribute to society. What sort of support do you think you got from Victoria Police? Once I got back to work, it was magnificent. You know, I, I had support from mates from uh, I'd, when I, from when I'd worked in Dandenong. Uh, I formed close relationships with a lot of members there, and uh, both socially and, and professionally. And so much so that the while I was in hospital, the police allocated a, a car to be stationed at Cheltenham, which was to be used... Uh, solely for uh, driving my wife out to the the Austin Hospital every day, cause it, which was quite a fair distance, and all all of my mates uh, and friends uh, voluntary uh, worked out a roster to run my wife out to the hospital every day. So, you know, it, it was just great great backup from everyone. You were awarded a Victoria Police Star in 2007 for your action on duty that day. What did that mean to you, Brian? Yeah, I think it was recognition that, uh, and it was something to be proud of and, and uh, to sort of be awarded that medal in front of a crowd of uh, uh, people who'd come to see their... Um, their sons and daughters graduate from the academy. Um, I thought it was significant because it was showing that the the police really care about you while you're a, while you are a member. Mm. It must have made an, an enormous difference to your life, because I'd imagine you know how do you find peace with it? Like how do you how do you move on with your life after such a significant event? I think the main reason is that I had uh, a, f- a f- finality to it, that Marinoff was uh, shot and killed. Uh, I didn't have to worry about him anymore. I only had to worry about myself and my rehab and uh, getting back to normal so I could focus solely on myself and not on him. What's life like now for you, Brian, after policing? Um, you retired in 2007. What's life been like? Yeah, life's been good. I've found outside interests. Uh, uh, I go to a, with my wife, I go to a Probus group. I've, I've been a vice president and president of the Probus group. Uh, I go to a men's shed, which I find immensely enjoying, uh, but not during COVID, obviously, but... Uh, yeah, but we still catch up with Zoom meetings and, yeah, we spend time with our family and grandkids. Sounds great. How do you reflect on that night of 1985? How, how do you reflect on that now? I think uh, all I can re- reflect on is that life changed, but it didn't finish. And... Uh, I've often thought, well, you know, I, when I was an operation, in an operational police force, I probably attended a lot of serious crimes, but I n- never attended a murder. And I thought, well, I nearly attended my own. 
So uh, I think life's pretty good. Well, I think you've certainly found peace, Brian. Is that what you think you've found and, and managed to put it to bed? Yeah, I've I've managed to uh, put it to bed and uh, and just get on with life. Uh, I, I think that's what you know most people have got to do if they can do it. Uh, put the past in the past and look to the future. What has it taught you about life? Well, it's taught me a lot as being a disabled person because you have more empathy with disabled people. You meet so many people who are disabled and and what we have to put up with uh, in society, you know, with access to premises and uh, just, just generally how you're accepted. Um, I was very conscious when I was first in a wheelchair of even going out to a shopping centre uh, because I felt people looking at you. Uh, but you get, you get used to that, um, and most people are, are, are very good about and accepting of disabled people, which is, which is great. So. Well, look, um, it's been a real privilege um, sitting with you on the crime couch and, and listening to your story, Brian, and all your experiences, so thank you very much. Thanks, Rochelle. Thanks for joining me. I'm Rochelle Jackson, and I look forward to your company next time on The Crime Catch. Thank you.